back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, actors, costume designers, uh, editors, sound editors, sound mixers, um, composers, production designers, you name it. We talk to them here on Behind the Lens. And of course, we love our independent filmmakers and our first-time filmmakers. That's something we really like to champion here on on BTL Radio Show. Um, obviously, if you're listening right now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com. But don't forget, if you miss us live... You can always catch every episode, seven years worth of episodes, on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, and then out on all the the multiplicity of podcast platforms. Um, and then I think up to six weeks or something, Pam, you have, is archived. The most six-week most current episodes are on the AdrenalineRadio.com site. And you can also watch our live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. The live stream is nothing thrilling. It's me sitting here in the studio. Um, the only thing that ever changes are my tablescapes. Today's tablescape is, it's a little sparse, but it's a very literary one because I just had to show off my new acquisition. Thank you, Sean, at Larry Edmonds Books, Bookshop in Hollywood for George the George... George Sakiris's newest bio, My West Side Story. And it's autographed to me in everything, um, which I always love. I've started reading it. It's really good. So I can't encourage you enough to pick up a copy of that. All you classic film fans, this is a must. And for everybody who's anxiously awaiting Spielberg's The Updated, the new West Side Story for the 21st Century, um read the book before you see the film. I think it might give you some insight into the original that may give you greater depth when you see the new version. And of course, the newest quarterly edition of the pen name is out, and I am so tickled. Thank you, John and Charlie, uh, the editors and publishers. My exclusive interview with MJ Bassett um, the writer-director of Endangered Species, front page. Very happy. If you're in the L.A. area, you can find the pen names scattered, especially uh, scattered around L.A., especially on the west side. Um, print, print. It was only uh, with the spring edition that they've added an online complement because the pen name firmly believes in print. Print is not dead. Movies are back in theaters, and printing is not dead. So it's a win-win. Um, so if you get a chance, check that out. Um, I really love speaking with MJ. I really loved uh, our interview. And this particular feature focuses on our conversation on wildlife conservation in Africa, and particularly the rhino, which plays a big part in the film Endangered Species. But enough about all of that. It's crime at Christmas today on Behind the Lens. Uh, very excited. The midpoint of the show, writer-director, producer Corey Moss is going to be joining me live talking about his new film, White Elephant. This is his feature narrative debut as a director. Uh, and it's a heck of a lot of fun. Um, you know, what happens when you put eight best friends together for a White Elephant gift exchange uh, and everything may have gone smoothly in the past, but when secrets suddenly erupt and get revealed, even the best friendships get strained, as does Christmas. So can't wait to talk to Corey. But first, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with writer-director Joe Raffa, an actor, producer, and actually it's his idea of a story uh, for the film Down East, Greg Finley. You know Greg Finley. He has been all over television, a lot of one-offs. Most recent, Secret Life of the American Teenager. He played Jack Pappas on there. 
Uh, most recently, he was in the film, a very twisted film, called The Estate, which is absolutely delicious. Uh, that came out uh, later in 2020, last year. Uh, but Greg is the lead actor in Down East. It is set in Portland, Maine, and it dives into the underbelly of life. You don't think about Maine having an underbelly. We all, the only thing most of us know about Maine is Jessica Fletcher and Cabot Cove on Murder, She Wrote. And even though there are murders that happen in Cabot, Co Cabot Cove, it's still a nice place to be. Um, Joe and Greg dive a little deeper into some darkness, and they develop a story where a hometown girl comes back. She's still haunted by the death of her brother years ago. Uh, which is part of why she left the town. She reconnects with Greg's character of Tommy, who is our, our protagonist. Uh, and then slowly, Emma starts piecing together the past and finding out what really happened uh, to her brother. Uh, we bring in the Irish mob, the Irish mafia. We've got notes of the Italian mafia happening. The authenticity is incredible. All the townspeople, because this is, these are Greg's hometown people. Um, they all jumped in. A lot of them are extras in the film. Vendors open their businesses. So you really feel the community come forth in this film. So uh, we've got some breakout performances, which you're going to hear me talk to the boys about. Um, most notably, Judson, Judson Mills, who plays Pete Kerrigan, who is the Irish Mafia um, head in local head and his enforcer is a guy named Brennan played by Joss Glennie Smith and he will scare the bejeebus out of you he is everything that you would expect you could envision him sitting as the as right hand to Bugsy Siegel um so good so good um Dylan Silver plays Emma um Gareth Williams comes in as Tommy's George dad Dennis Cockrum comes in as <clears throat> George's brother, Billy, who is Tommy's uncle. Um, just a very well done film, steeped in authenticity. So, because I know we're going to run late, uh, <laughs> without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Joe Rafa and Greg Finley talking down east. Hi, Debbie. How's it going? Yeah, it's going fine, Joe. How's it going with you? Doing all right. Joe, I really like this film. I didn't know what to expect, especially because about the only thing we've ever really seen on the big or small screen about Maine or any part of it is Jessica Fletcher in Cabot Cove on Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> so seeing Maine, seeing Portland, seeing the seacoast, seeing the lobstering, to this, with this intensity and degree, is wonderful. It's a whole new world, really. And you bring in that crime factor, the, you know, the crime boss idea, which we've seen in Philly and South Jersey and Chicago and New York. But you don't really expect or think about it somewhere like Maine. And I really like that, and I love how you develop this story and this script with your pacing, with the characters, but most of all, with the moral ambiguity. There is no black and white in this film, but for possibly Emma, and even that's a little, a little questionable at times, but you really bring out those multi-shades of gray, of life, and of the darker side of life, while still giving us some rays of hope and positivity, and I love how you structured that. Oh, thank you so much. I, I love to hear you say that. It really, really means a lot to us. Um, and with with it being set in Portland, uh, that all started with Greg. Greg was from there, born and raised there. Um, and I was working for APS Films, which was led by Edwin Stevens, uh, who's also from Maine. Um, and those two guys, they really have such a passion uh, for the location. They know. So much more about the location that it'll take me another lifetime to understand. Uh, but we had the same creative DNA, and we, uh, you know, we really leaned on each other to to develop the story. And Greg had been living with this idea for so many years, um, 
And I think he may, he may have chimed in, correct? I'm here. I'm just listening. Oh, what's up, Greg? Uh, Greg's, Greg's being sneaky. He, he's being... <laughs> very, very sneaky. I'm a listener. <laughs> A, a little lurky lube in the background here. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so happy you're here. Happy you're having us. Oh, I'm thrilled. So, Joe, continue. Continue as the lurky Lou is listening. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just think, you know, I was, um, you know, I was honored that, that Greg trusted me with this uh, story that he's been very passionate to tell for so many years. Um, and I visited Maine a couple of years prior uh, with Ed Stevens. Uh, we were working on a documentary, and then we did another feature film there. Uh, and I fell in love with the area. You know, I, coming from Philadelphia, there's a, there's a lot of similarities. You know, there's mm -hmm. smaller, blue-collar towns, but obviously Portland, Maine is a port city that has this, you know, the focus on the, the lobster. And um, so you basically replace cheesesteaks with, with lobster rolls. That's, in my opinion. <laughs> that's, pr that's pretty much uh, it. But no, it, goes, it goes beyond that. Uh, Portland is, a, is a, another league of its own. It's one of my favorite cities. Uh, and the, the community there and the help that we got when we were shooting there and the way they embraced us uh, and supported Greg and Ed and myself, uh, was, it was absolutely wonderful. It was amazing. You know, Greg, you know, what prompted you to come up with this story? You were you were acting. Um, by the way, I loved you in the estate um, that I oh, saw. You saw the estate. I oh. saw the estate. Oh, with a poster like that, it was impossible not to tell the publicist, "Yes, I want to see this." And I got a kick out of it. <laughs> I got a yeah, kick that, out. That was a fun ride. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, so what prompted you to decide you wanted to tell a story, obviously close to your heart because it's your hometown. Um, you know, and yeah. what led you to this story? You could have gone, you know, very upbeat, very happy, but you chose this grittier, this grittier story. And as I said to Joe, it's filled with these, you know, a multiplicity of shades of gray and moral ambiguities. So it's an interesting take to tell. Um, so I'm curious of your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, I mean... You know, growing up, first and foremost, growing up as a, as a, a movie fan, and, you know, uh, I, I'm your typical, like, I just love those, you know, when, when Joe says we have the same creative DNA, I think Joe and I bond over the Sopranos more than anything. Um, we just love that genre, first and foremost. And, you know, I was, it was 2005. I was in Los Angeles. I was struggling and working, you know, odd-end jobs, and, and I was the auditions I was going out for weren't, you know, really exciting to me. And I just had the wild idea to come up with something. And in a, in a complete dream world, I would, I, would, I would shoot it in Maine. And that was, like, always my goal. And, you know, Portland, as you saw in the movie, it, it, it's so beautiful and, and great and charming, but it also is a very gritty-looking uh, city. And I knew that a gritty crime drama... With, you know, a love story as well. It would just fit so well there. And, um, you know, that was kind of how it, it sprung. Yeah, oh, forget about the love story. Go with the gritty, gritty crime drama every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> every, every time you want that. So just a little bit of love in there to, to you know, yeah. tease some people. Well, you, t you both talk about the beauty of, of Portland, and seeing it on screen, it truly does look beautiful. The architecture is old it's old world it's fabulous i love i love the architecture of the east coast um because it just screams oh, beautiful but that's credit to uh ed to be honest with you you know ed ed obviously yeah ed, ed is a supremely talented ed's a supremely talented cinematographer and then when you put him in a place like Maine, uh to match made in heaven all yeah. that, all. and i knew that i knew i knew watching a couple of guys uh, and Joe's prior uh, project, I knew, I just knew, I knew it was uh, Portland and, and Ed and Joe were a match made in heaven. Well, you know, curious for you, Joe, how did you and Ed go about finding the visual tonal bandwidth? Because I love, I love the visual, the overall visual tonal bandwidth and the nuance that comes into play. You never take anything really dark. You visually capture shades of gray 
within the gray of the sea, the gray of the sky, and you punctuate that with, you know, darkening up perhaps the brick of the buildings. But then you give us bright spots, like Tommy's home. It's white on white, and then you surround everything with snow, which is a cinematographer's nightmare. And you take us all the way to we get sun and light and hope. So you've got a beautiful visual tonal design here. So I'm curious as to your thoughts working with Ed and what, how the two of you developed this look. Yeah, I think the, the great thing about working with Ed is he's, he's a cinematographer that can make anything look pretty, but he's story-driven. And we knew this was a story, like you said, that was filled with moral ambiguity that, was, that existed in this gray area. Uh, and we knew a big part of this film, uh, a lot of what this film hinges on, is that contrast between the summer memories mm -hmm. that Tommy has with Emma and the, this hope that he's clinging on to um, with the, the harsh reality that he's living in now. So we always leaned into that. Uh, and we always put an emphasis on that. And when we, you know, we're in Portland thinking about where we are in the story and the scene, and it's just always, always conscious of, you know, why we're, we're telling this scene or why this shot exists. And, and Ed always has a finger on the pulse of the story. And as a cinematographer, that's not always guaranteed. So um, very, very lucky to be working with a, a cast and crew that always were thinking about story first and knew exactly where we were in the story at all times. It helped out tremendously. And that's something I also noticed. You guys really stayed away from the extreme, clo extreme close-ups. And you went more for your mid-two shots and then your wide shots that really give us an idea that while, and we always have a lot of people in the frame, so you feel the close-knit community, the camaraderie and even the antagonism between some people, but we see the wider scope. So it's not just pigeonholed. You take it out a little further, giving us the illusion of how it impacts elsewhere, which we see unfold in the story when we get, you know, the Italians involved from the north. Um, with what their crime boss wants. So I really love how the two of you did that visually. Um, and not too many directors and cinematographers, I think, would have gone that route. I think they would have pushed in with a lot of ECUs and really gone with that darker, gritty, negative space. Uh, so I love how you guys designed this. Yeah, we were, um, you know, we had a, a very long conversation before we started, and the film we did prior was the opposite direction. It was filled with close-ups because um, it was about the, some of the darker personal secrets that people held. So we, we had a lot of close-ups with people in shadow, and for this, we wanted the environment and the surroundings mm -hmm. uh, to play a huge role in every shot, like you said. Um, and I always wanted, you know, I was like, yeah, I'd really like to open it up for this film and kind of avoid close-ups and we take our close-ups very sparingly. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's, I'm glad that you found it effective and that you felt that watching the film. It's really, really uh, is validating for us. Yeah, I really like that you did that because, as I said, most directors and cinematographers would have gone the opposite direction and really pushed in to get the lines on faces and the intensity. Um, but, no, you're expanding and you're metaphorically showing us that what's going on is bigger than just a couple of people, that it, it affects everything, yeah. and I love that. You know, how challenging was it for you, Greg, stepping into the role of Tommy? Because you're walk Tommy's walking such a fine line here, especially any time he's around Emma. Um, and then the intensity, the confrontations between Tommy and... Carrigan, and I have to say, incredible casting with Judson Mills as as Pete Carrigan. Absolutely love him in that role. But I'm curious as to how you went about developing your performance of Tommy, given that tightrope that you've got to walk. Yeah, um, I feel like Tommy it had to be a lot of containment because there's two things. Tommy, after we'll call it the incident with... Um, with Mikey, you know, pre that, you know, Tommy, and I don't know how much, you know, we showed about that, but, you know, during the flashback scene, there was a little more pep in his step, and uh, 
get a little more to live for and a little more hope and, uh, you know, post-incident, you know, under the thumb of, of Kerrigan in this town, he's kind of um, kind of beaten down like a, like a beaten puppy. He was uh, this tough guy and, and, and confident, and now he's just been beaten down for seven years. And, and then the stuff with um, Emma is, he's a, he's a, speaking of secrets, he's holding a secret. And again, containment, he can't open up as much as he wants to, as much as he wants to. So it's, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of uh, just kind of getting in that space where it was, you know, I'm, I'm beaten down and, you know, the cold winter in Maine helped me uh, with that. And, and that's just something I held on to. Yeah, speaking of that cold winter in Maine, how much fun was that for both of you guys, blocking, shooting, moving around town? and freezing yourselves to death, and being out on the water. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I, I think it, it definitely added an element to the film that you wouldn't have been able to, to replicate without that cold, harsh winter, for sure. I did. Yeah, I, it, it's, uh, I'm just very happy everybody was game and on board. I think we had, like, I think I gave that slight speech, like, hey, it's going to be freezing, everyone, just get ready, and... However you think, however cold you think it's going to be, it's going to be colder. And everyone was game and no complaints. But, yeah, I mean, it was rough. There's no, there's no doubt about it. How did the weather hold we up for you, Joe? We had a very amazing cast and crew. I can't say that enough. It was just the perfect yeah. blend of personalities and people there that everybody, we had a really, really good time, despite the conditions. And, yeah. again, the, uh, the community of Portland really, really helped. If they weren't so welcoming, and um, it, you know, it would have been a lot tougher. But but they they really allowed us to get this done. You know, and you meant you, you both mentioned the community of Portland, and this is really reflected with the individual characters that you have here. A perfect example is Marty. Kirk Fox does a great job as Marty, and you know, he's always observational. He runs his mouth in the bar, but. Boy, oh boy, when Tommy needs something, Marty's there at the drop of a hat or the drop of a phone on the bar as quick as he can get to to do what what he, what he needs. But you never really get the sense that they're besties or anything like that. But and then you've got, you know, George just running off to do something. Um, even Uncle Billy, he steps up. You've got other people that that step in. And I find that that speaks to what you're saying about the people of Portland, because it's like you may not know everybody, you may not be best friends, you may not be that involved, but when somebody needs something, they come. They come. One hundred percent. I remember we were location scouting, and we had a list of places that we needed to find. And uh, Kevin Haley, who's a local there, part of the police force, he just took us around we thought we were going to see two or three places that day i think we saw a dozen calling people up on the phone we need this we need that can you get me this can you get us that uh and then craig's brother zach also a huge help in, in getting everything together and then you know greg greg's friends and family who's got a house who's got this who's got that uh it was so much easier uh than i thought it would be because uh, it's a very ambitious project for you know for the, the level we were doing it at and again wouldn't have been able to happen without all those people yeah, and I, I just love that that comes across with your characters on screen. And that speaks volumes about Portland. And that's really one of the bright lights that counters the grays of the story. Uh, yeah, I think um, Christy, Christy Faison and Jamie Rudofsky, our casting directors, really brought in amazing talent for us. They, they were essential in, in us getting the film that we, that we got. Uh, and all the actors, you know, from Greg, obviously, developing the story and, and, and creating the story, but uh, even people like Kirk Fox and uh, uh, Dennis Cockrum, uh, they elevated the script on another level. Kirk really looked at Marty, and he was like, okay, he's comic relief, but he is also a support system for, for Tommy, and really highlighted that and did more with the material than I could have ever dreamed of. So, And that started with the casting directors, and then... Um, manifested itself with the actors on set. It was phenomenal. How difficult or challenging was the casting? 
because this is it, it's a, a semi-large ensemble, and while most people are supporting players, it's like you lose one of them. It's like Joss Glenny Smith is Brennan. He's standout. He is malevolence. He is he's great. But you know, you take him away and everything him specifically in that role, and I don't think it would ever be the same. So I'm curious how difficult the casting was to get this recipe right. Uh, it, it, it didn't feel that difficult, uh, to be honest. You know, but again, it was it was me. It was Greg. It was Ed. It was our other producer, Corey, um, and it was our casting directors. You know, that all had eyes on it. So for me, I I watched certain tapes and I like certain tapes but I remember Greg seeing Joss and Greg is like oh no that's you know that's Brennan look at his face we got to bring him back that's him right and then there's you know there's other standouts for other people and with everybody working together I think we put together a really really good cast and it felt really really lucky no, you... Greg kind of cut you off there no no I was going to echo that and, and again you know shout out to our cast because it it, it it was a dream casting session and when you say was it how difficult was it it wasn't we just watched and we honestly at least i know joe i can speak for joe we couldn't believe how dead on all of our choices were and it was almost very quickly unanimous and just the people just came ready and they were so damn talented we got lucky greg you're also a producer on the film were you how involved were you from a producing standpoint or did you let yourself just focus on your performance? I, I mean, I think like Joe and Ed trusted trusted me. I trusted them. And I mean, as far as, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I kind of, that was part of the thing. I told Joe and Ed in the beginning, like, you know, Portland, they're going to they're gonna have our backs. And, you know, I have connections there to, to ease the, the pain of making a movie and, you know, between my brother and uh, Zach and, you know, Kevin, Haley. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we shot in my basement. We shot at my dad's office. We, you know, shot, you know, at the, the next to the pizzeria I used to work at. I mean, it, I, I was involved in that sense. But, um, yeah, it was, I think it was kind of hard not to get my hands on it in, in, in a production standpoint because it was just, it was very close to home, part of the fun. So, but we all trusted each other. It was definitely a, uh, it was a group effort, for sure. A film like this, it's always about your editing is so key in establishing the pacing, giving us that, that potboiler burn, you know, slow burn leading up to that third act. Joe, how, how lengthy was your editing process? I know you work with Meredith before, so obviously I'm thinking you guys have a, perhaps a shorthand with your editing. But I'm curious how long the editing process was and finding that balance and that beat, that heartbeat of this story. Yeah, I think uh, Meredith, amazing editor, she offers a, always offers a perspective that, that we don't have for the most part, which helps tremendously in creating a, a film that's multifaceted and, um, you know, again, existing in that gray area. The actual process of the edit took a little bit. Um, I don't remember how long exactly, but I know that we were doing it during COVID. Mm -hmm. We were lucky to finish the film right before COVID hit, so we had to do a lot of it virtually. And because I've collaborated with Meredith before, um, and Luke, our sound mixer, sound designer, and Aaron, our composer, uh, I think we had a, you know, a workflow and a partnership, and um, there was a trust that was already built there. Without that, I think it would have been a lot more difficult to do this virtually and not being in the same room for most of the time. But, you know, again, I think a film's made three times. It's made when it's shot, it's made when it's, it's, made when it's written, it's made when it's shot, and it's made when it's edited. Um, and you kind of have to be unbiased at every point. And Meredith, having her in the edit, editor's chair is just, it's, it's like having an ace up your sleeve. You know, she, she brings a lot uh, to the table that you can never dream of and never think of. And, you know, we, there was a lot of, you know, cutting on the editing room floor that were really good scenes that we really liked, but we always kept the story in mind and what was best for the story and keeping that pacing in mind, like you said, that I think turned out really well. Uh, she, was, she was crucial. Yeah, that pacing, we get to that hour three, uh, that hour three minute mark, and you just, you kick it into high gear. 
you lead up, you lead up, big stuff happening at 49 minutes, 58 minutes. But, man, you hit that hour, three-minute mark, and you fly. And I didn't even want to blink because I thought I would miss something. Really excited when we were building that at the edit. I was like, because you're in, you're in production and you're having a good time and everybody feels great, but you don't know what you really have until you're in post-production, sitting in the room and putting everything together. And while we were doing that, I was like, oh, this is... This is special. We have, we have something here. Mm -hmm. well, Very you, exciting. You know, you mentioned a key word, and it was the first thing I noticed when I started watching the film, and that is your sound. Applause, applause, applause on your sound. We're hearing the water as the boat's going through it. We're hearing all the little, the little elements, the little clanking things, the ropes, the winches, all those little things on the boat. We're hearing the birds. We're hearing the wind. The sound mix is impeccable. And then you bring in Aaron Bagley's score, which is not what I expected. But given this movie, it fits perfectly and is expected. Once you see the film, the score makes perfect sense. It's not what you would traditionally expect with a quote-unquote crime, crime kind of movie. But the sound and the score and that mix is incredible. What were what were you looking for musically with Aaron? And then from a sonic standpoint, with that sound mix and working with Luke, because the little details from the snow to poor Tommy getting hit by a car, we hear all these sounds. We hear the punches. You know, we hear the appropriate gunshot when guns are fired. You know, a rifle, 12-gauge shotgun sounds a lot different than a little handgun pistol. And we get all of that. So talk to me, Joe, about this, because the sound is the first thing that struck me, and I went, wow. Yeah, I think, you know, it really starts with Louise, which is our sound mixer in production, um, because without him getting some, you know, quality sounds in Portland... You know, it would make Luke's job, our sound mixer and post, a lot harder. And I remember a specific moment when um, we were shooting that lighthouse scene, the observatory scene, uh -huh. with Tommy and Emma up in the observatory, and you could hear the wind whistling outside. Mm -hmm. That wind, you know, was really howling and whistling while we were shooting. And I remember talking to Louise, and Louise is like, it sounds great except for that wind, unless you want that. And I'm like, you totally want that. Like, that was six day four of shooting and it, it really clicked it's like we really need to embrace not just the images of portland but the sounds that come with it as well um and then luke did an amazing job in post replacing things highlighting things getting it to a certain level and then with aaron i think again we leaned we leaned into that idea of the story is how we have to balance this 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 crime um this grittiness the harsh realities of the world that tommy's living in now with those bright memories of the past and, and the hope that he still kind of clings on to and holds on to that he may have buried. Um, and I think when Aaron came out with, I, I didn't give any notes to Aaron before he gave us the first pass of the, of the score. And he gave us the, the song that you hear in the lighthouse, mm -hmm. in the observatory, when Tommy's with Emma first. And it really reminded me of like scores of Tangerine Dream. Uh, and then I thought about, you know, what, what Tangerine Dream did when they did do these crime thrillers. And Tangerine Dream did this amazing score for Thief, Michael Mann's first feature film. Mm, yes. James Caan. And it was like, it, that's what it really reminded me of. And I was like, I love that for Tommy and the scene. And then we kind of just built on it from there. But it all started with that one piece, which was really important for the whole film. I just so love your sound mix with the score here. And it's all those little details that really give us the flavor. And, and that was... There's still about five minutes to go of this interview, but you're going to have to hear that on BehindTheLensOnline.net tonight. But that is Greg Finley and Joe Rafa talking about Down East. It is available now on all your digital platforms. Um, well worth a look. It is a great little pot boiler. But now we're going to go from crime, and we're going to jump right into Christmas in July with Corey Moss. Hi, Corey. Hello, how are you? I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. 
This movie, White Elephant, is so much fun. It is a punster's delight. Uh, <laughs> the the dialogue, it's the puns you have in here are not only hilarious <laughs> but rapier. Uh, as I'm watching the film, I know a couple publicists uh, who used to be uh, with Disney. Now they've gone on to other ventures. But uh, they running punsters, and all I could think of was them because it's every other word coming out of some of these characters. Until <laughs> things get a little serious, it, it's hilarious, hilarious. What you do playing with the English language is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Uh, you know, everybody know. Yeah, everybody's heard of the white elephant garage sales and the white elephant gift exchanges. Um, but nobody's ever really seen anything. I can't think of any film where we've really seen a white elephant anything played out to this degree, and especially not cent- you know Christmas centric gift exchange rules and regulations for this gift exchange. Uh, it's hilarious. Where did this idea come from, Corey? Uh, because I, I just think it's spectacular. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, I uh, grew up going to a Christmas uh, white elephant with our extended family, and we um, took it super serious and we're super competitive. And so I think, you know, I always have that in my head when, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I'm a big fan of holiday movies. I wanted to write one, but I wanted to do something that's never been done before, which is hard because like 80 Christmas movies get made a year. So there's so many. Uh, but it was the, you know, I thought, you know, maybe there's something with White Elephant. Uh, typically, the White Elephant gift exchanges are, you know, gag gifts or $10 gifts or whatever. And so I thought immediately that I needed to raise the stakes by having it be, um, you know, super serious. So, you know, in the movie, it's a hundred dollar price limit. They take it very serious. They have a lot of rules and it's super competitive. And um, and that kind of helps uh, the movie start to come together and form these personalities a little bit. And it's like, OK, if, if these eight friends are going to take a white elephant gift exchange this serious, then what happens if the other things in their lives that really matter start to unravel? <laughs> well, and unravel they do. But, you know, you talk about you wanted to do a Christmas movie, even though there are 80 bajillion Christmas movies every single year. So, you know, I, no- I noticed you bring Lana in, Lana McKissick. Um, she has a lot of Christmas movie experience. I have seen her in quite a few Christmas movies. I think Lifetime had Christmas on, on the on the men on the menu christmas movie christmas um a cinderella christmas she knows christmas movies so you you brought in <laughs> a ringer it. here Corey. you cast a ringer uh i know I, you, <laughs> you gotta do it you know what's interesting is that um there was a, an actor named nathan moore who auditioned originally for john and we loved him in that role he had a mustache he was really silly um, and then when we were about to hire him, we found out that he was he was Lana's husband in real life. So we uh, said, well, we should at least, you know, have him read for Billy so we can see what they would look like reading opposite each other. And then when he did, we said, oh, my God, we have to have them play Lana and, or play uh, PJ and Billy. And then when I met with them together, they said, Corey, you don't even know, like, this is us. We take Christmas this serious. Like, you know, and, and, you know, some of the costumes in the movie are things that they brought from home. <laughs> uh, you know, and that doesn't surprise me because some of the costumes, especially the, the tropical Santa Claus shirt that Nathan is wearing as his character of Billy, it looks like something that would have to come out of somebody's closet. You would not, <laughs> you would not be able to find that just off the rack somewhere, even at a secondhand thrift store. Um, Well, I take that as a big compliment because that actually was from wardrobe and I actually was the wardrobe on this movie. You know, (laughs) we shot this movie during COVID and so we wanted to have a really small crew. And so I wore a lot of hats, including wardrobe, which I know nothing about. 
but obviously just having written the movie and, and kind of knowing in my head what the kinds of things people would wear. So uh, I take that as a compliment that you figured that that was right out of a closet. That's I really nice believe that that came out of somebody's closet. But, <laughs> you know, but at least as wardrobe, all you had to worry about was one set, one outfit for each person, for each of your eight people, because it takes place over the course of a few hours on one night in one home, and all we see is the kitchen in the living room. So that cuts down on your set dress. That cuts down on your production design. That cuts down on, you know, costume changes. So you did this the right way, Corey. Yeah, you, you, yeah, thank you. It definitely uh, lended itself to being a good, uh, you know, pandemic type of, of production. Um, you know, we do have all of those flashbacks in the movie, and they, they do wear different clothing. And, and actually, we uh, we would sort of, we shot the, the flashbacks in reverse order on our last day, and we just sort of slowly, like, undressed the set with the idea that, like, you know, they would be building it each year. You know, right. everybody you know, kind of adds new Christmas decorations to their, uh, you know, uh, set up each year. So we just did that in reverse and hopefully, hopefully it, it worked well, but, um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, it actually was made it really nice to, to be able to just focus on the characters and the story and, and not have to, uh, you know, be doing big moves with our crew every day. You know, there's a nice advantage to that. We shot it a lot like a play, like, Everyone came in totally memorized. We did a lot of rehearsals over Zoom, and um, so we were able to do scenes in big chunks, and that's really fun to do for actors, I think. Well, and one of the great things, and and I love how you how you you know you're saying that you did the flashbacks in reverse to undress everything. I, I have to say, I love what your cinematographer, what Tobias Demel did. Uh, with your cinematography, with those flashbacks, because the lighting gets totally softened. Um, it really, it almost comes across like, you know, sugar, sugar plum fairy dreams at Christmas. Uh, and it was a really nice effect that contrasts with the present day. Um, so Thank I, you. I Thank really you. enjoyed seeing that. And also, your color palette, you just keep the basic you know, muted tone, well lit in the room, and you let the Christmas decorations, the red and green, the lights on the tree, and then of course the impeccable. Kudos to your to your gift present wrapper. Um, <laughs> you know, they need to if they need work. You know, hopefully this coming Christmas, gift wrappers will be back in the malls again. Those yeah, are yeah. beautiful well, you know, wrapping jobs. When you watch uh, gift being unwrapped on TV or movies, they do the whole thing where it's just like a lid and they wrap yeah. the lid and then you no. take the lid off because they're trying to say, and I'm like, no, we cannot do that. This is a movie about unwrapping presents. We have to do it the legit way. Nobody really wraps presents that way. That's so unrealistic. So the, uh, the downside was that we had to do a lot of present wrapping. So uh, I wish that we had just one, but there were about five people, myself included, who every time we'd say cut would grab a present and rewrap it. Okay, well, the present wrapping looks beautiful. And considering a couple of the items that you had to wrap, uh, hilarious. Hilarious how you <laughs> did wrap them. And I'm not going to say what they are because I want people to be surprised. Um, okay. okay. I, I do think it's safe to say, though, that now we know where all the, where all the pallets of toilet paper ended up uh, when people were stockpiling <laughs> exactly. it during covid um, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. And you should apologize for that, Corey. Here we are. <laughs> you know, toilet paper is off the shelves. Now we know who had it all. Uh, you know, yep. but that, hey, a perfect Christmas gift in 2020. It was. <laughs> Let it me was. tell you. You know, it was, it was kind of tough because it was like, do we acknowledge, uh, you know, that, that what's happening this year? You know, this movie is sort of present day you know but we don't want it to be so we did it in real subtle ways you know like so the toilet paper obviously uh but you know you could technically give toilet paper as a white elephant gift any year just had a special meaning in 2020 i don't think i don't think a half a pallet though i don't think a half a pallet <laughs> of, of toilet paper Corey. that's a little that'd be a little overboard um and i think given today's <laughs> prices for toilet paper, and for you had name brand toilet paper there. 
uh, I might point yeah. out. It wasn't the cheap stuff. It was the extra cushy comfort stuff. So. Well, you can't go cheap on toilet paper. No. No. I think we're all in agreement. So this is one thing in seven years of behind the lens. Okay. We are now in agreement. We have talked about the need for soft toilet paper. Okay. So. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You know, how did you, your casting, this is a great ensemble, a great ensemble. And I love these pairings. You've got Lana, you've got Nathan, and Nathan, those puns just flow out of him uh, like he's with such ease, such naturalness. And then you pit him and Matthew Hancock, who plays John. He does the same thing. And you've got the two of them almost wrapping puns back and forth. No pun intended with rap. Um, <laughs> but I loved watching that dynamic and hearing the two of them go back and forth riffing on puns. Um, you uh, know. It, it really is. It makes me smile watching it. And, and I think part of it is that they're both experienced theater actors and they had never met, but we had some great rehearsals. And, you know, I told Nathan right away that, you know, he was the pun master. I told him about how I do pun offs with some of my friends. And I said to embrace it. So he went, you know, wrote a bunch of puns himself. And, uh, you know, some of them in the, in the movie are from the script and some came from his, his brain. And then, you know, I told Matthew that, you know, you guys are a team. You know, you're a comedy duo. And they really embrace that. They're so funny together. And, um, it was really neat also to see, you know, like, um, typically when you make a movie, you, you know, you grow really close because you're spending a month or two together and, and, you know, we didn't have the luxury of spending that time together with this, but, um, we did through all of the rehearsals of, uh, you know, over zoom. And then when we were together, the week that we filmed, we did grow together as a family and those friendships became really real. And that was, I think, a key to this cast is that, it really plays that they have been this this tight knit group of friends for all these years, you know. Absolutely, and I mean, you you bring in Carmelo Zambato, you got Paul. Uh, how do you say Paul's last name? I don't want to mess Camerian. up. Camerian. Camerian. You got Coco Jones, who I just saw last year in Vampires versus the Bronx, um, which is a fun movie. You got Avery Norris, yep. and then another great standout is Devin Druid as Wayne, the sweet, quiet, nice guy. Oh, my God. Your heart just breaks for him. He is the He's the considerate, he thoughtful guy in the group. And every group yeah. has and one. He is absolutely the sweetest guy you will ever meet. And, you know, honestly, I think if we didn't shoot this movie during the pandemic, somebody like Devin or Carmela, who was just coming off of you, and obviously Devin from 13 Reasons Why, like, they would have been off shooting bigger movies or bigger yeah. shows. Like, you know, I think we were able to, to, to get them because of the fact that most people weren't working. And it was such a blessing because, uh, you know, I, I absolutely adored working with, with, with my entire cast. But the experience that Devin and Carmela brought, just, they light up the screen. So it was su- such, a, such a thrill. And Coco's obviously beautiful and the total star and... The whole cast was fantastic. And there is not a minute that you don't believe that these are best friends and they have been hanging out together for years. You believe that every second of this movie, even when, and it's no spoiler to say PJ has a meltdown, um, which is something that I don't normally see from Lana in her, in other roles I've seen her do. But she does meltdown. She does meltdown and bitchiness really well. <laughs> she does. She but does. this whole cast... You know, we shot, uh, we shot one of those uh, meltdowns as our first scene on our first day. And after the first take, I looked over to my producing partner. I had chills. And I'm pretty sure I had a tear coming down my eye. And I just said, okay, we've got a movie. Like, she is incredible. And, like, a lot of the, you know, the movie really hitches on how well you, uh, you know, connect with her character and the, the massive emotional roller coaster that she goes on through this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's pretty, pretty special. You know, this whole cast, you know, how difficult was it 
find, especially since you're casting during COVID, so you don't have in-person castings, you can't see the chemistry together. But, you know, this, this group of eight is so fine-tuned. I'm curious how challenging it was to get this right mix. Yeah, I mean, you know, I put a lot of the credit on our casting directors. Uh, we've worked with them in the past. They're just fantastic. And, um, you know, and I think we did do chemical, chemical, chemistry <laughs> reads. They were just uh, done over, over Zoom, you know, and you tried as hard as you could to get a sense of, of, you know, how people would play together and whatnot. But really, they're just all pros. And when we, and the, like I said, the rehearsals were really key. And we, you know, we would, do an hour of, a, of, of rehearsing and then we'd stop and do an hour of just like hanging out. Like Devin would pick up a guitar and, you know, strum and the girls would sing and then we'd start talking about astrology or something like that. And, and so, um, you know, that was the chemistry amongst everybody really built through uh, our rehearsals, I think. Well, now this is your first narrative feature. You have umpteen producing credits to your name. Um, you've, you've directed one doc, um, you've directed a TV episode, so, but you're no stranger to film from a producing standpoint, but what was this learning curve like for you as a director stepping into a narrative feature? Yeah, luckily, you know, my producing partner has directed several features. And so I had somebody in my corner helping me along the way, Brad Gottfried, and uh, that was super key, um, especially because this was pretty non-traditional in the sense that, you know, I wore a lot of hats throughout it. You know, I you know, was sitting in my house a couple of weeks before we filmed with my daughters, like making the duct tape chair prop, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the best advice that he gave me was, you know, when you get to the, uh, you know, when you're about ready to shoot, you, you have to take the other hats off and just focus yeah. on your cast and and the performances and um you know and so that was uh really strange for me to be on a set and and not be producing like you know hey did we get the lunch order in on time it's like <laughs> stop it stop thinking about that like go <laughs> so uh but you know l like i said earlier the cast was so great and they made it so easy and um, you know, it was uh, it was a really enjoyable experience because of how easy the cast was and how talented they were. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely had a blast. Well, you know, as good as it is to just have one location so that you're not jumping around, you don't have to worry about, you know, setups and moving the whole company and all. What kind of challenges did it present for you and Tobias in terms of your blocking and your framing, because what I found really interesting is you guys keep the camera moving. Either the camera is moving or the characters are moving within that designated living room space so that we don't get tired of seeing. There's, there's always something happening um, so that we don't get bored or, you know, want to turn the film off uh, because we're just looking at the same thing. You know, you did vary, you vary the shots, you, you kept everything moving, physically moving. So I'm curious, was that challenging for you and Tobias um, with that constraint? Yeah, well, thank you for the comment. I really appreciate that. My favorite TV show of all time is Friday Night Lights. And the way that they film that show, they never lock a camera off. And so we did the same thing. We never once set a camera down there. It's entirely on cam and um and you know when you do that you you know every once in a while you might miss a little bit of a line or, or or something like that but what you gain from what you lose is so special to me like i love the energy of it i love the feel of it um shooting that way and um you know obviously you just need a really talented dp and tobias is someone i've worked with quite a bit and mm -hmm. and he's so great at that and i just trust it in and uh, we did, he, he and I worked with this app going in where we blocked every scene and all of the movement and everything so we could pull open on an iPad and show everybody. Uh, and I think after the first morning, we kind of stopped even pulling it out because the, it was almost easier for the actors to just do the natural movements of, you know, 
I'm crossing the room here because I'm feeling this gift. And then I'm crossing the room back because, you know, I'm pissed off at this person and I'm, I'm just naturally moving away from them. So we started to really let the actors trust their own blocking. And I think mm-hmm. that added to it, uh, you know, even just sort of in, in another level. Well, and the fact that Tobias, and you and Tobias were smart enough to know to pull that camera back just enough so that you have that space, that stage space for them to play in, which is something I know that Woody Allen does, likes to do. He'll set up a space. Here's a box. Here's a rectangle. Do whatever you want inside there. <laughs> um, and it works because you get that natural flow. And for a film like this... Um, Number one, you know, a white elephant gift exchange. Okay, the humor is right there. And it's going to be a free-for-all. And you need to capture an unscripted physical free-for-all. And it really, and that's where the naturalness really stands out. So I love what the two of you did from that lensing standpoint, from that framing and blocking standpoint. It really worked to just let your actors move and just pull back on that camera to give them that freedom. Really, thank you. Smart move, very smart move, Corey. Um, <laughs> thank you. You know, obviously, whenever you have a Christmas film, you must have requisite Christmas music, and you have plenty of it. Um, all that fun stuff that's out there in the public domain. Um, thank goodness, because it helps with your budgeting. But then you've also yeah. got your opening title song and your end title song. Okay. Sp- are hilarious hilarious <laughs> when you listen to the lyrics they are hilarious obviously these are written custom for you yeah so i'm i'm a big fan of movies that use the same artist in throughout their music you mm-hmm. know i mean like you know if i didn't i didn't switch my you know my director of photography every shot or i didn't switch my production designer every shot so why should you, you know, switch your music? So um, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, and one of my best friends who I went to college with is still there and has his own studio, and we've collaborated in the past. But I called him early on before we, we got into the, you know, pre-production and stuff and, and threw out this idea, and, and he was so excited. Not only did he, you know, write and record all of the music, including the originals and the covers, but he also scored the entire movie. Yeah. So every piece of music is all from one artist. And he did such an incredible job. And we have a 25-year friendship. So, uh, you know, a shorthand. And just and we had so much fun. We both love Christmas music. So um, we had fun. You know, when we wrote White Elephant Blues, I was texting him lines. I'm like, I think you got to have a shout-out to the, uh, uh, you know, the singing bass. Like, that, that was kind of like the most famous white elephant gift of all time, you know? And then he writes me back, and he's like, you know, he rhymes it with kiss my ass, which is the only cuss word we have in the whole movie. But I had to keep it in there because it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, and I, um, that's one thing I noticed because there is original score in there. But I love how he integrates the Christmas carol motifs. Um, we get just enough in there and it flows really well. Um, and I really like how that all comes together. So uh, number one, because it is one composer is performing everything, but also it just, it doesn't jar you. It doesn't take you out or detract from the story and the antics of the characters that that we have become, uh, that we have started to really enjoy and want to see more from. So I really, I really like what Tony did. Thank you. Thank you. And then the soundtrack is available on Spotify. And, um, you know, I think the song that he wrote for the intro was all him. And he was really just inspired by kind of what happens at Christmas get togethers when you're at this age, which is um, you just get grilled by, you know, oh, why aren't you married yet? And all of these types of things. And so, you know, his idea to do the song, Just Say Merry Christmas, uh, I thought fit so well with the movie. And, and, man, it's like the first time I heard it, I said, man, this is a this is going to be an instant classic, you know. So well, I'll tell uh, you, hopefully, I, it find, hopefully it finds a life on its own. Well, I'll tell you, I, the, the film starts and I'm hearing this song and I'm hearing the words. 
I was sitting there laughing out loud uh, because it's just so spot on to life. Um, and I thought, this is a great way to start a film. This is perfect. Um, it really, it gets you in the mood. You know it's going to be fun. You know it's going to be upbeat. Um, and it's poking fun at some of the worst elements of family get-togethers at the holidays. <laughs> you can't go wrong with Absolutely. that. So now that you have completed directing your first narrative feature, and everybody can see it starting today... Um, it's out everywhere, isn't it? Digitally everywhere today? Yes. Um, yeah, all the the VOD platforms and iTunes, Fandango now, Google Play, YouTube. Um, it's all over today on Amazon Prime, Vudu, Tubi. My God, you are on every platform with this film. You really are celebrating Christmas in July for all of us. Um. (laughs) I know, and I think it's kind of a good Christmas in July movie because. Oh, yeah. You don't see snow. You don't see Santa Claus. Um, there's no like winter cabin or whatever, like, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, it kind of works, I think. It does. But, you know, now that everybody can now enjoy the, the frivolity of the holidays, uh, with white elephant, I'm curious what you learned about yourself as a filmmaker. As I said earlier, you are an accomplished producer, um, you know, documentary series. I mean, you've done been a producer of so many different different series television series and then you have directed some in the past but this is a big jump and doing it during covid no less during lockdown what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future projects be it as a producer be it hopefully as a director yeah i think for me um I really felt at the end that it it wasn't that different from other projects I've done that are on paper vastly different. And I what I mean by that is, you know, I you know, I produced a, a docu series about high school quarterbacks called QB one that was on Netflix that I love. And it you know, it's obviously unscripted and, and could not be more different, but a good, you know, good stories are good stories and mm-hmm. good characters are good characters. And, you know, you have to really dig into, you know, the personalities and the themes and all of those things to be able to tell those stories and to be able to unleash those characters. And um, that's what I realized that that's what I love. And it's not necessarily a specific genre or even a specific format. I've done, mm-hmm. you know, super short form. I've done, you know, obviously features now. So um, I think that was probably the, the biggest learning uh, uh, takeaway for me is just that I, you know, what I really love is to just, you know, tell a, t- tell a powerful story. Now, will we see you back behind the camera directing and writing more scripts? For sure, I you know I um, I kind of always felt like when I did direct, it would be something that I wrote because it just felt like a natural segue. And um, I think if you're a producer as active as I am, and you're constantly reading stuff, that if you're also looking for things to direct, mm-hmm. you're not doing it justice as a producer. So right. uh, I think you know I serve my producer hat well by not reading material, looking for things to direct, knowing that in my mind I'll direct stuff that I write. So, um, But I have written a couple things since then that I, I would love to make, including a White Elephant sequel. Um, so uh, we'll see. Well, we definitely need a sequel because you give us a great end credit epilogue um, so that we see people a year later. So but now there are new additions that can be added to the white elephant uh, That's right. exchange. That's right. And once you get those short elements thrown in, it's no holds barred. It's, <laughs> it's a true free yeah. for all. Um, Absolutely. Oh. Well, I, for one, I want to see a sequel, but I will see any, any feature that you want to direct. Um, I just, I love what you did here and I can't wait to see, what you do next when you're not confined by lockdowns, when you have more freedom, 
um, to move about and expand your own horizon and skill set, directorial skill set. Job well done, Corey. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. Oh, my God, Corey. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. Anytime. You are fantastic at what you do, and I can tell that you just really understand this medium. So it's it's a treat to, to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Well, here's to next time. In the meantime, go practice your rapping. <laughs> All right, I'm on it. Thanks, Corey. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was writer, director, and producer Corey Moss. White Elephant, it is everywhere today, all your platforms today. Um, You will laugh. It will make everything seem lighter and brighter. Um, You're going to ho-ho-ho, you're going to boo-hoo-hoo, and uh, then you're going to ho-ho-ho a whole lot more. Well, that is all the time we have today. Next week we have, it looks like we have a full house next week with all live guests on the show. So we'll see if I get my re-re-re-confirmations for that. But whatever filmmakers that we have, you know they're going to be good. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 